to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. I wonder how much you know about your family tree. Seems to be a, an odd obsession of middle-aged men that they all of a sudden have to start looking up their family trees. Do you have secret trysts, illegitimate children, philanderers perhaps? It was at one time uh, a peculiar problem for those families seeking some kind of advance in pleasant society to discover some skeleton in the closet of the family, a wayward uncle, a shady lady or something like that. Now, of course, as time progresses, these things change. Where once in middle-class Australia having a convict heritage was a fact best kept secret, now it's more like a badge of honour. Similarly, uh, Indigenous blood in the family uh, has gone from being unmentionable uh, to a cause for celebration. But what about you, though? Got any secrets in the closet uh, of your family, or have you been too afraid to look? <clears throat> I'm from uh, country Tasmanian stock, where it was not uncommon for families to have an ambiguous number of siblings. Now, these families were often very large, uh, with the poor mother giving birth continuously over a span of about a quarter of a century, up to at least 11 times in the case of my grandmother's mother, that is, 11 that we know survived. However, it was revealed uh, in later conversations with my grandparents that um, one summer the eldest daughter left town to go and stay with some relatives and uh, returned, her return coincided with the arrival of another child in the family for mum. The result was, I guess you'd say, something of a blurring of generational lines uh, with a couple of the brothers being a little closer in age than nature usually allows. Now, this issue of scandal in the family is particularly important for us today as we consider the next section of Paul's letter to the Romans. In a remarkable twist of family history, one of those who-do-you-think-you-are moments uh, from the popular television show, Paul reminds his hearers that one of the chief reasons that the gospel is good news lies in the fact that Christianity is for pagans. Christianity is for pagans. Well, let's get our bearings uh, before we proceed with today's passage. If you uh, please have uh, Romans chapter 4 uh, opened up. But we need to retrace our steps a bit uh, back into chapter 3. Paul's description uh, of humanity's wretched state has finally turned a corner uh, from the, the relentless account of sin uh, and unrighteousness and our failure to live up to God's standards. Look there uh, in chapter 3, verse 20, if you've got it open. It would be very helpful. Chapter 3, verse 20, Paul writes, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, 
the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. See, there is another way to be declared righteous in God's sight, says Paul, a way that is perfectly in keeping with the words that God has spoken in the past, but nevertheless, a way of being pure and blameless before God that doesn't involve our futile attempts to uphold God's law. That way is, of course, a matter of faith in the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. Christianity is, at its heart, a matter of trusting God's promises made in Christ. Look a little bit further down in chapter 3, verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he'd left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now what all this means is in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has made it possible for two vitally important truths to be upheld at the same time. On the one hand, God maintains that everything he has said about what is good and evil so that we can have some sense of what it means to live well in the world. Those things are still true, says Paul. But on the other hand, God has a solution for our utter inability to live with any kind of inconsistency according to what is right, good and true. That solution is to trust that Jesus' death justifies and purifies our lives. So that's where we've come from in terms of Paul's great argument. What about this scandal then that I was referring to? Well, says Paul, it comes from your family tree. So here we move on to chapter 4, which was our reading today. Chapter 4 begins with something of a rhetorical question about Abraham. Paul says, chapter 4, verse 1, What shall we say about Abraham? Now, whether it's what Abraham found or what we've found out about Abraham, the central issue is the nature of Abraham's relationship with the Lord. What shall we say about the way that Abraham related to God? Now, considering the significance of Abraham for the nation of Israel, whatever Abraham did, Jewish people should do likewise, especially if we're going to refer to him as our forefather. Now, Paul seems to imply that even if Abraham was blessed by God, it was not because of any work of the law that he performed. In fact, as the scriptures show, Abraham at, time, Abraham at times fairly meagre faith, his fairly meagre attempts to trust God, meant that God considered him to be righteous nevertheless. So here Paul starts to look back into the Jewish family tree, as it were, to discover some essential truths about the history of salvation. Paul says, let's go right back to the story of Abraham. What do we see there in terms of how we ought to relate to God? Well, in Genesis chapter, one verse, uh, Genesis chapter 15, which is our first uh, reading from uh, the Bible, we read this. After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. 
Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield. I will reward you very greatly. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me? Since I'm childless and an heir of my house will be a slave from Damascus. Abraham continued, look, you've given me no offspring. So a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him. This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside. That is, God took Abraham outside. Look at the sky and count the stars if you are able to. Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. And here's the clencher. Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. Now, in the face of crisis, Abraham is an old man. He's nearly 100 years old and he still hasn't had his first child. In spite of this, Abraham trusts that God's interpretation of the future is better than his own. Abraham submits his plans for his life to the promises that God has made instead. In truth, what makes Abraham stand out is that he believes in miracles. Or that his faith was to trust God against all the circumstances. The faith of Abraham is belief in miracles. Abraham trusted God's promise in spite of all the circumstances, to trust that God could and would perform the miraculous. This, we are told, is the right way, the righteous response to the promises of God. Paul tells the Romans that if that it's, it's in the way their forefather responded that God's people will be made righteous. That what is preached to them in the faith of Jesus Christ is directly in keeping with the way that Abraham trusted God. Paul's saying, if you trust the promises made in Jesus, then you will be trusting God just like Abraham did. Deep down at the foundation of Christian faith is the belief that God does miracles. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God does miracles? Now, the chief miracle for us is that God raised Jesus from the dead. That's the outward one that we celebrate every year at Easter time in amidst all the foodie festivals. But even that is only a sign of a far greater and deeper miracle. That is that the holy and transcendently powerful God would come into his own creation to die like a slave so that sinners could be forgiven. That is a miracle. Do you believe that miracle? That God himself, who flung the stars into space, came down to this earth, walked upon it like you and I do, and died ignominiously like a criminal so that sinners could be forgiven? To believe that is to believe like Abraham does. See, it's, this is how we know that there is a God. This is how we know that he's willing and able to speak to us because he became one of us 
and the great miracle of the gospel story that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting our sins against us. Do you believe that? Can you trust that promise? That God was in Jesus making you right with him? Because if that's the case, then your faith is as great as the faith of Abraham. The way into this miraculous life with the Lord Jesus is a simple trust in the same manner as Abraham's, that God does miracles. Now, more practically, Paul shifts his emphasis slightly in discussing Abraham's righteousness to show that it really, let's think of it in economic terms, says Paul. Imagine uh, we're talking about going to work and earning a wage. Paul says, Abraham's righteousness was a gift. It was not like any kind of economic transaction. Look at verse 4 and 5 of chapter 4. Now, to anyone who works, their wages are not credited to them as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to anyone who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. You see, in fiscal terms, God deposited resources against Abraham's debt so that the balance in his righteousness account was in the black. Now, we all like the idea of being in the black, don't we? We live with more debt than we really can, but there's nothing quite like that moment of paying off a credit card or paying off a mortgage. People hold parties to celebrate it. It's true. So I've been told. I'm not there yet. (laughs) But God credits righteousness to Abraham the debtor as a gift. In himself, and despite his great standing in the faith of Christianity, Judaism and Islam, Abraham had feet of clay. Twice he passed off his wife as his sister to escape imagined peril. He even slept with his wife's maid at Herbie Hest to produce a child. Yet, when God promised him descendants like the stars, he believed God's word and it was credited to him as righteousness. To submit your life, your plans, your identity, your purpose or meaning or significance or achievement to the promises of God in Jesus, well, that is exactly what Abraham did all those years ago. Trusting God, not negotiating or trading or bargaining with him, that is the right response to the things that God has done for us in Christ Jesus. You see, such talking of negotiating or trading with God makes it sound like we're on equal footing with him when it comes to working out how our lives will go. You know how it goes. Each morning you invite God to your staff meeting. You issue some action plans for him to carry out during the day, perhaps giving him an insight into some long-range plans uh, that he can work towards. He's quite a good project manager. But you outline things for him and give him a, you know, a set of reasonable, achievable goals uh, that he can work towards in terms of your prosperity and your well-being. And, and then you leave him to go about his business during the day while you concentrate on the larger issues. It's not like that. It might feel like it is, 
But even if we were God's debtors, even if we were God's equals, we're still God's debtors. We're still indebted to God because of our sin, either towards him directly or indirectly through the sins we've committed against others. That's what we read about all the way through chapter 3. Paul sums it up in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of them. All of them. And all of us. Every single one of us. All the time. All our lives. Fall short of God's glory. None of us treat God or others with the same level of devotion and consistency that Jesus of Nazareth did. Not one. None of us can stand next to Jesus and say, he did it my way. Now, as Australians, I think we're loath to be indebted or somehow dependent upon each other unless the burden is shared. We hate borrowing money off others or asking for favours. We won't even let someone invite us around for dinner without offering to bring half the meal. Is it any wonder then that we respond to God in the same way. No, 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 please, please, let me bring something as well. Don't do it all yourself, Lord. I'll carry some of the burden for you. But Paul reminds us that the righteous way to live is to entrust ourselves entirely to the one who declares the ungodly to be righteous. You see, in the family tree of Christianity, we're all skeletons. We're that ungodly one that God forgave and made righteous. The ungodly one, the liar, the cheat. That one, that's us. And God forgave us. Now, ironically, I don't think our problem is how God can declare the ungodly to be righteous, but rather why he should be allowed to do so in the first place. Nevertheless, accepting this indebtedness towards God is actually what brings joy to our lives. Can you believe that? You will actually live joyfully in the most fulfilled manner if you let your life be audited by God and receive credit for him for your shortcomings. Can you believe that? Does that sound miraculous? In that kind of sceptical way of, oh, that could never possibly happen. That's like a politician keeping their promises. This, says Paul, is what David was singing about in the Psalms. It's mentioned there in Romans chapter 4, verse 7. Have a look. How joyful are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. How joyful is the man the Lord will never charge with sin. David is singing a song about how good it is to have your sins forgiven. Life doesn't get any better for us, David sings, than to be forgiven for all our failings, both public and private. David goes on in Psalm 32 like this. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, 
I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you took away the guilt of my sin. The burning shame of words misspoken or love betrayed. The ugly shadow of desires that rule us. The bitter gall of resentment and regret. All these sins sink into our bones, making us brittle and colourless husks, shades of the deeper, vibrant life that God intended for us. Yet there is hope, says Paul. In the face of our long list of wretchedness, God is prepared to say, Nevertheless, I forgive you. You can be right with me. Not... You've done this, you've done this, you've done this, you've done this, and therefore you are doomed. God looks at the list of our lives and says, Nevertheless, in Christ, I forgive you. God looks down through the caricature that it is our outward respectability, that all day long protection veneer that coats our frailty with false pride. God looks through all that pretense and says, nevertheless, I give you the gift of true righteousness, true purity, true respectability. I give you my son. If you believe that, says Paul, then you are every bit as righteous as Abraham, the father of our faith. Every bit. You're a hero of the faith, just like Abraham was. If you trust that God says to your sin, nevertheless, I give you Christ. Well, what about this scandal then? This skeleton in the family closet, as it were. Well, if it wasn't enough that God unjustifies the ungodly, there's more. Paul goes on, This hope we have of forgiveness is not a small one, for the blessings of forgiveness that come from God are not for a select few. Now, the Jews of Paul's time, as even the Christian ones, were quite certain that the blessings of God could come only for those who were of the family of Abraham. You had to be a circumcised son of a Jewish mother in order to have any claim upon the blessings of God for the world. So, Paul says, well, wait a minute here. Wait a minute. Let's go back and look exactly at what God said to Abraham. Now, Paul doesn't mention it here, but if you turn back a little further from Genesis chapter 15 to chapter 12, this is what God originally said to Abraham. He said, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And here's the clincher again. And all people of the earth will be blessed through you. All of them. All of them will be blessed through Abraham. This is what makes the original example of Abraham so powerful in Paul's argument. Entrusting ourselves to the promises of God in order to be considered righteous by him was never dependent on observing the law or obeying the rules or any kind of religious practice. 
For there was nothing about Abraham that warranted God's blessing. And all that Abraham needed to do was to trust that. That is, trust that you've got nothing to offer. Now, all through these chapters, we've heard each week, the astute Jewish Christian listening to Paul might have been saying, well, okay, obviously Abraham was freed from observing the law of Moses because he lived 400 years before Moses did. Obviously, he can't keep the law. However, Abraham did have the sign of circumcision to identify him as the recipient of God's calling. Therefore, anyone who would be included in God's household must, like Abraham, be circumcised. Not so, says Paul. And there's a tight argument to finish off this last section, so you'll have to look at it with me here because the ideas all run close together. We'll start from verse 9. Paul says in verse 9, Now, is the blessing of God for the circumcised then? That is, you know, do you have to have the circumcision that Abraham had in order to receive his blessing? Or is it also for the uncircumcised? Well, that's unlikely to be true because everybody who wasn't circumcised was not a child of Abraham. But Paul goes on, For we say faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. In what way then was it credited? while he was circumcised or uncircumcised. See, again, did Abraham receive the promises of God before or after he was circumcised? And here is the 24-carat tabloid scandal. Did Abraham receive the blessings of God while he was a pagan? Does God not only bless the ungodly, but does he also bless idol worshippers? Well, look at Romans chapter 4, verse 10. Not while he was circumcised, says Paul, but uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while still uncircumcised. Abraham was considered to be righteous before God while he was a pagan Gentile. One of those people about whom Paul spoke so harshly in Romans chapter 1. Let me remind you what Jews think of pagans. Chapter 1 verse 28. They did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. They're filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love and no mercy. And Abraham was one of them. The great father of your faith, says Paul, received the blessings of God while he was a Gentile pagan. Abraham was one of those Gentile pagans who God called to himself, says Paul. The whole practice of circumcision which the early Christian Jews took to be so important, the whole practice to designate someone who was already right with God came from God marking a pagan as receiving a blessing. So to receive that sign, you have to admit that you're a pagan in need of God's blessing.
to participate in the faith of Abraham, to be included in the promises of God's blessing, you have to trust God that the ungodly can be justified. As Paul says, Romans chapter 4, verse 11, This was to make him the father of all who believe but are not circumcised, so that righteousness may be credited to them also. For the promises to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. The great scandal of the Jewish family tree, says Paul, is that our forefather Abraham was a pagan when God made promises to him, and it was as a pagan that Abraham trusted those promises and became more righteous than we could ever hope to be in our futile attempts at keeping God's law. Each week, God draws us here, not so that we can enter into some kind of new bargain, some special arrangement, some debt forestallment, some extension of our overdraft. God draws us here to remind us that he forgives the ungodly. That his blessings are for pagans. And not just the tattooed, pierced and rather straggly ones that walk up and down King Street with their fancy rings through their ears and their hand-painted scowl on their faces. Not just those pagans, but those middle-class idolaters. For us. God's righteousness is for the ungodly, for Gentiles. And it's a gift for all who will trust. You don't have to see a financial advisor. You don't need a lawyer. You don't need any kind of broker. All you need is a simple trust that God justifies the ungodly. And you will become one of the children of Abraham, forgiven, purified, and promised of a certain hope with the Lord Jesus. Our great God and loving Heavenly Father, we come before you as the ungodly, the unwashed, the outcast, faithless, hopeless and without mercy. And yet, Lord, we marvel that this is exactly the way that you would have us come. And so receive a gift of righteousness that shines like the stars in the heaven. The purity that comes through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus is ours for your glory. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au